And for our scripture reading this afternoon, we'll turn to the first epistle of Peter, Peter in chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in, in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, 
having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And now this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. As far as Scripture reading And in connection with our scripture reading, we'll also turn to the Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 8, in the back of your Psalter. Page 36, in the back of your Psalter, Lord's Day 8, and question 24. Speaking about the articles, the 12 articles of faith, or the Apostles' Creed, and question 24 asks, how are these articles divided? The answer is into three parts. The first is of God the Father in our creation. The second of God the Son in our redemption. And the third of God the Holy Ghost in our sanctification. Question 25 asks, since there is but one only divine essence, Why do you speak of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The answer is because God has so revealed Himself in His Word that these three distinct persons are the one, only, true, and eternal God. So our focus this afternoon will be on the first few verses of 1 Peter 1 in connection with what we read in the Lord's Day. And dear congregation, we can read and hear a lot about the persecuted church around the world. We hear how recently in Nigeria there have been many attacks on the church there, even the Reformed churches that we are familiar with. We hear in China how many churches are driven to the, to the underground church how they're being suppressed in many different ways. We can hear about the refugees that even come to our own country from places like Afghanistan or Pakistan because they're being threatened in their own country. But now, if you were to write to these countries, to these people, what would you write to them in a letter to comfort them and to encourage them to persevere in their faith? What doctrines of the Bible might come to your mind that you would use to instruct them and that would be beneficial for them, that would be helpful for them in their, in their circumstance? What would be real and tangible for them in, in, in their circumstance, even though they're, they're facing these grievous and these fiery trials? Because that's very much what Peter faces here. Peter is writing a letter. He is in Rome and he's writing to this, this church that's scattered throughout the northern parts of Asia Minor. And he uses the doctrine of the Trinity. He uses the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's what we want to focus on this, this afternoon as we look at Peter's letter, and especially the first few verses. And so our theme is faith in the triune God. Faith in the triune God. The purpose Peter is writing this letter is to encourage these believers to to persevere in the faith 
despite all the persecutions that they're facing and the hardships that they're enduring. And it's by faith that John says that we overcome the world. How do we overcome the world? By faith. And as we considered, as we were working through the Lord's Day last time, we considered what faith was. It consists of that knowledge of God and that confidence in God, that, that firm trust, that firm hope in Him. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 says. And every week as churches, as we did this afternoon again, we confess our faith along with the 12 articles of faith, or with the Apostles' Creed. And these summarize what it is, what is necessary for us to believe, and what it is that we confess to believe, what we need to know to live and die happily. Sometimes people ask, well, what's so important about doctrine? Why do we need to learn that anyway? How does it help us? Can't we just read the Bible? Well, certainly it all comes from the Bible. And you believe in God, but who is that God that you believe in? What does He do? Who is He? What does He do for sinners? Because there are so many wrong views in the world today about God, so many incomplete views, and so many views that never satisfy the requirements for true faith. And just like those persecuted believers, you need a real God to meet you in your real circumstances. You need to know who He is for you now in your life. And so when, when, you, when you read these confessions and when you say them, even every Sunday, what, what comfort do you draw from them? Or does it just flow from your lips without thinking? Because we can do that quite easily as well. But what comfort then do we have when we confess our faith in a triune God? Because that's what all these confessions have. The, whether it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian's Creed, it all shows us the Trinity, the triune God. And that's how Peter begins this letter here as well. And he uses this doctrine to encourage these persecuted believers. And this is how God reveals Himself to us. He has chosen to reveal Himself to us in the form of the Trinity, and to reveal to us what, what He is and what He does for sinners. And those of you who sat in on the doctrines class after this morning's service, we cover that in the class as well. Because God is a spirit. If you try to comprehend who God is, it's, it's, He's incomprehensible, and He can seem so distant from us. And so who is this God that we must worship? Isn't that the struggle of every nation? They're looking for every way possible to, to worship this God and to, to get near to this God and to be accepted with this God. But it's through the doctrine of the Trinity that God becomes very, He shows us in a very practical and a helpful way to understand who He is. And it's through the Trinity that God reveals how He comes to us, how He comes to sinners how He comes to make sinner his, his own children, to unite Him to Himself, to adopt Him into the family of God, and even to dwell in them with His Holy Spirit. And so as we read Peter's letter here, he begins, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
Here he comes with the apostolic authority that he received from Jesus Christ himself. He's one of the called ones, one of the sent ones to bring this message from God to the church. And so he comes as a messenger of Christ himself to the church of Christ to, to encourage them, to, to build them up, to strengthen them in the faith. And he begins, you notice, with language that's very similar to our confessions, to the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, even though it wasn't written by the Apostles, is based on the Apostles' doctrine. That's what the Apostles preached. And we see how Peter, when he begins to write here, he, he, he comes to these, these persecuted believers. He, he reaches them where they are in their circumstances. He writes to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you notice, if you, if you look at the original Greek, it actually, the, the word elect is actually pushed right to the beginning. It says, to the elect pilgrims who are dispersed, to the elect strangers who are scattered, the focus is on the children of God, the, the elect whom God has chosen from out of this world. He says you are the elect, even though you're pilgrims, though you're strangers, though you're foreigners in this country. It seems like in our own country, North America, we need to be reminded more often that we are pilgrims, that we are strangers in this world, traveling through this life, like we considered last week from chapter 2. Because it's so easy to be so focused on this life that we forget that we're heading to another, that we're heading to eternity. But here Peter writes this as a matter of fact to pilgrims, to strangers who are very aware of this fact. They are very acutely aware that they're not at home here, driven through the, uh, persecuted and scattered through the world, driven from place to place. That's still happening today. People, many people come to our country to seek peace, to seek freedom. But we can ask why. Why are you pilgrims and strangers in this world? Because here Peter describes, describes him as the elect and chosen of God. You become strangers and pilgrims in this world when your citizenship is transferred to heaven. When you become children of God, being born again, people chosen out of the human race. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, a chosen generation, a special people. If you've moved around the world, or especially if you've gone to a different country that's much different than ours, you realize that there's a big culture shock. That, that when you move there, you initially you don't fit in. Everything is so different. Our whole life from the inside out has been acclimatized to the culture in which we have been raised and that begins to change when you move to a new country. You try to acclimatize to the new culture. And that begins after you move. But with God's people, it works the opposite way. You're still living here on this earth. You're still in this culture. The culture that you were born and raised in. And, but, but God is changing you from the inside out 
to prepare you for the day when He will bring you into glory, into the eternal homeland. Because when people arrive in heaven, when God takes His people to heaven, it will not be a culture shock to them. Because God is preparing them for that day when they will be glorified for the moment that they will meet the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3 verse 2, it says that change will be completed when they will will be made like Christ. When they'll see Him face to face, it says they'll be made like Him. When they're glorified, perfected, all sin removed. But it's because that change is taking place in God's people here on earth that you become separated from this world. Instead of merging into the culture, you're merging out of the culture. You're increasingly becoming strangers and foreigners here on this earth. You're living as temporary residents. And you begin to lose your attachments. You begin to lose lose your love for the world. And you also notice the world begins to reject you. You begin to lose your rights. In many places, they, they lose everything they have. They begin to feel the world's hatred and enmity against God that they take out against God's church. They begin to feel that opposition. And here are the people that Peter is writing to. It says in verse 6, they're they're facing severe trials. In chapter 2, verse 19, they suffered unjust sufferings, falsely accused. They're slandered. They suffered for the sake of Christ. And because of that persecution, they were scattered all over the, over the world. In Acts 8, 8, you can read how that persecution started in Jerusalem and it drove the people out to as far as Judea and Samaria. Further on in Acts eleven nineteen, they traveled further to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And now Peter's addressing the Jews and the Gentiles who are scattered all through the northern parts of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so you can see they're being driven further and further away. And it is to these people that Peter is writing, writing to encourage them with the doctrine of the Trinity. And why? Why does he use that? Because into this, in relation to this world, they are foreigners, they are strangers. But Peter goes on to define them not by the world, but in relation to the triune God. He reminds them of who God is and what He does for them. And He says they are elect, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it seems like He just, He writes so plainly about the Trinity, He doesn't even bother to explain it. They must have understood, and He would have also understood that Deuteronomy 6 says that the Lord our God is one Lord, that there is but one God. But as we read in the Catechism, question 25, it says God has revealed Himself in this way through His Word that these three distinct persons are the one, only, true, and eternal God. And that's how Peter here, he, he describes Him to the people. And so first he says, elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He reminds them of God the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth, who holds all of history in His hands, who knows the end from the beginning. This is the God who has elected you, He says, who cares for you, 
Because that word foreknowledge here that he uses is not just an ability to predict the future. As some define God's foreknowledge as, as God being able to look down the hallways of time and to see what will happen or who will choose. But that is no comfort. That means salvation is up to the person who decides to turn to the Lord. And that means salvation can be lost if, if we don't hold on to it tightly enough ourselves. But what gives comfort to the soul is when your life, even if it is threatened, and though your faith is being tested like fire, it's to know that God's foreknowledge is the sovereignty of God, both to choose those whom He will save and also to make that happen, to accomplish that salvation for His people. And that's what Peter is pointing out here, that God is the one who determines everything from the beginning of time. And we see that in Acts 2, verse 23, how, how he shows that with the same word where Peter says that Jesus was being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. That even though it was the hands of wicked men, of those who opposed Christ, who crucified him, yet it is by God's foreknowledge, God's sovereignty, that Christ was the one who was foreordained for that specific purpose to die on the cross for His people. And that's what, one, that's what Peter says in verse 20 of this chapter, that He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world was manifest in these last times for you who through Him believe in God. And so Peter writes to these Christians, he says, you are elect, chosen by God the Father, just as Christ Himself is said to be chosen he calls these people a chosen generation, a special people, a peculiar people in verse 9 in chapter 2. That means they belong to God. That means they're His possession. They belong to the God who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's what we need to hear today as well, ourselves. We need to hear that just as much as that church did to whom Peter is writing it. Because our hearts naturally run away from God, born with enmity against God. Romans 3 said that there's none who seeks after God. There's none who is righteous, none who does good. And so if we seek the Lord, even if we're brought up in the fear of the Lord, these are all things to which we need to acknowledge God and to thank Him for His goodness. And that if you truly seek the Lord, it is only because He has called, because He has chosen you, not because of our own works or merits. And that's how Peter starts. But then we can always ask, and maybe they had these questions too, how do we know if we are chosen? Because Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. An election is part of God's secret will. He reveals that He does elect, but He doesn't reveal who He elects. We do not need to seek God only if we think we are elect. But God's revealed word says this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. His revealed will is that He calls us to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so then how does his knowledge of election comfort these persecuted believers or, or you? If it seems like he can never reach that. And that's why Peter continues to guide us. Where next he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. God not only chooses, but God also sanctifies sinners who He chooses. God's people are pilgrims on the way to an eternal inheritance in heaven. But Hebrews 12 says that without holiness no one shall see the Lord. Not only would there be that, such an infinite culture shock that you would not be able to stand, you cannot exist in the presence of God because He is completely separate from sin. He is holy. I mean separate from sin. Yet even His people in the Bible who caught a glimpse of the Lord fell, <clears throat> fell down as dead. They could not stand in His presence when there was still such a distance between them. But also for the very fact that God must punish all sin. But here this sanctification this is a transforming, transforming work to, to make you holy and to root out that sin. Now work here that Peter uses, says here, it's, it's, it's a continuing activity. It's a continuing work of God our whole life long until finally you're glorified in heaven to be made like Christ. But the purpose for which God chooses sinners is to sanctify them and to make them holy. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13 says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel. So how is election then the comfort? Well, because there will also be the evidence of God's sanctifying work in your life. It is never alone. And the canons and order are also helpful on this, where they speak of the, the assurance of coming to know this in our own lives. He says, not by inquisitively prying into the secret and deep things of God, but by observing in themselves with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure the infallible fruits of election pointed out in the Word of God, such as a true faith in Christ, a filial or a childlike fear, a godly sorrow for sin, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, etc. And so as you find yourselves growing in, in that love and in that desire for God, when you find in yourself an increased hatred for sin, an increased sorrow for sin, an increased repentance, and coming to God in repentance for sin, you'll find yourselves increasingly becoming strangers in this world as well. And not because... Your behavior becomes stranger, but our lives need to be examples of morality and of righteousness without blame in this world. But you learn to see that you can no longer love the things of this world. And the world begins to think that you are strange because you don't follow them in the same way as you might have used to. If you turn to 1 Peter 4 verse 3, he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange 
that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And so the world begins to speak evil of you as you're being transformed by the Spirit of God, as He's renewing your mind and will. These are all indications of a renewed heart. Do you find that in your life? That God, by His Spirit, convicts you of your sin as He draws you nearer to Himself in faith and repentance, finding no other place to go than to the living God and through Jesus Christ? Is there a desire in your heart, a hungering after the righteousness of God? You find in your heart a desire, like Peter says in verse 13, to, to be holy because you know God is holy. For the love of His goodness, for the love of His word and truth, What is the comfort of the Holy Spirit in your life? And as you find yourself being distanced in this world because of your faith in Christ, you realize you are a pilgrim because you've been called out of this world. In this world, but not of this world. God gives His Holy Spirit as a comforter to those people. That through His Word, He leads you in all truth. That He indwells you that He opens your understanding, that He gives faith and hope. The Holy Spirit is the one who fulfills that promise that Jesus gives where He says, I will be with you until the end of the world. He's that Spirit of life. He's the one who gives spiritual life like the vine gives life to the branch. But then we go further. And this is why, why does the Holy Spirit then sanctify His people? Well, it's just cleanse it from all sin. But Peter says, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You could say, or to obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says that we are to be as obedient children of God. And verse 22, Peter says, Puri <coughs> excuse me, purify your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. How are you comforted that you belong to the triune God? What are some of the characteristics of that obedience in the elect believer? Well, Peter says in verse 22, there must be that sincere love for one another. Chapter 2, verse 2, there's that sincere desire for God and for His Word. There's that holy fear of God, even when we endure hardships. Chapter 2, verse 19, he speaks that his people would rather suffer wrongfully rather than sin against God. Think of Joseph. And the epistle, first epistle of John as well describes all these characteristics of the believer, the marks of grace that God works in his people. There's obedience to God's word worked by his Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He applies that work of Christ to your soul. And they're reminded that they are saved, as Peter says in verse 19, through the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, the blood that was shed on the cross for the remission of sins. And their life is directed by this fact. And to know that He was foreordained before the world, 
before the foundation of the world to redeem sinners from their sins by, by taking that price upon Himself, by that being the ransom price for sinners. That the penalty of your disobedience was laid upon Christ, that His blood was shed away, shed upon the cross to take away the sins of the world. You know, when Peter says the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, it represents that, that cleansing, the, the forgiveness of sins. When you by faith rest in Christ, it is the blood that cleanses from all sin through the work of the Spirit. That initial forgiveness, when you're regenerated by the Spirit, when that moment of faith, it takes hold of Christ, and it continues to cleanse for the rest of your life. When all your sin, Psalm 103 says, is removed as far as the east is from the west. And how we need to be reminded of that daily, especially when in this world we can suffer at the hands of the world, to, to know that we stand right with God, and that in His sight all our sins have been removed, that no matter what happened in this world, we have our home in heaven. And the Spirit is sent there to continuously be with His people. But also when our sins rise up against us, when we see our own sins still so active in our life, and when we fight and never seem to always over, all the way overcome, but then to know that in the sight of God, if you're justified in His sight, and those sins are gone once and for all, and every sin in your life from beginning to end is paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this leads you by His Spirit into a life of obedience, a life of being transformed into the image of Christ. Not in working up yourself to be accepted by God, but by His grace and Spirit, you live a life in faith, in dependence on Him. Because of your love and desire for His Word and His truth, you seek to obey His commandments. You want to walk in holiness. You want to do what is right because you know that is what's right. This is a reminder we need so often, isn't it? And you see how Peter then brings this, this trinity to these people. And we can see, we saw that in the Lord's Day, uh, question, or Lord's Day 8 as well, how our, how our own confession is divided up in the trinity here into the three parts. The first, the God, the Father of our creation. And second, God, the Son of our redemption. And third, God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. How we need to know each of the three persons of the Trinity for our own well-being, for our own salvation, for our own comfort, for our own guidance in this life. This is what He gave to the persecuted church for their comfort. How much more do we need to know it here? And especially for what we may lie ahead in our life whether it is persecution for us or whether it is sickness or even if it's health unto our death, we need to know that we are His, that we belong to the triune God, that He is the one who has taken us out of this world and claimed us for Himself. And He does so by His work of His Spirit, by the faith in Jesus Christ. And that is how Peter then can give the divine greeting at the end of verse 2. You'll notice that this is a very similar greeting to what we receive every Lord's Day at the beginning of the service. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. 
Grace because it is all undeserved. Grace because it is all God's work extended to unworthy sinners, called, sanctified, washed, all by the grace of the Lord, but then peace. Because that, is, that alone is what can give lasting peace to your soul. Peace to live in a hostile world. Peace to live in the midst of sinners and the battle with our own sinful flesh. Peace with God when the world hates you. Peace for pilgrims who are scattered throughout this world and throughout the land, though they are abused and tortured and slandered and wronged by the world. Yet peace, eternally blessed, with God. I wonder what comfort these persecuted believers had when they read just these first two verses. We have them in verses, but the first few lines of the, of the letter when they received it. What comfort would, it, would just these two verses have for them? And what comfort does the Trinity, this doctrine, give to you to hear of this triune God is your faith and hope set in this God, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And how can we use this to comfort others? How can we use this to comfort the persecuted around us or around the world? It's not just dry doctrines that we need to learn, but this is how the living God reveals Himself to sinners. In a fallen world, it is food for the soul. It is drink for a thirsty soul. A study to know them. To know God is life eternal. To know that God has chosen sinners, not for anything in us, but only for His own glory. And to know He has chosen you. Do you know that? Do you seek for it? Do you study it? Do you seek to know the God by His names in the way He has revealed Himself? That is what we need. And then with Peter, we'll be able to say grace to you and peace. Be multiplied. Amen.